Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and to uh, be with you in this space and at this time. My name is Nelson, and it's uh, my privilege to um, have a chance to preach again. And this morning, we are, we're almost at the end, folks. We are, we, it's been a long road, but we're almost at the end of the Apostles' Creed, believe it or not. So today I want to start by inviting us to actually stand and uh, confess the creed together. So I know you just were seated, or some of us were, but I invite you to stand if you're able, and let us begin. If you would like to join me, let's uh, confess the Apostles' Creed together, and let's start there with these words. So please join me. I believe God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I, I'm honored to be the one who gets to almost wrap up the Apostles' Creed. Um, next week, Scott is going to say some things about the Amen, because there's one more word at the very end. So, um, And it, he's going to invite us into some reflection as a community on, uh, on the creed as a whole. And so we look forward to that. There'll be some opportunity for sharing. And so uh, please don't miss next Sunday as we do bring a true wrap-up to this series. But today we want to look at the last section of the last phrase and the life everlasting. So uh, last week we explored the first part, which says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I framed it as kind of a part one um, with the life everlasting being part two. So that's where we are. If you've been around for any Sunday of this series or you've listened to any of the podcasts, you will have hopefully picked up on the one big question we're asking of every phrase within the creed, which is this. What does it mean to believe into this part of the creed? Does that sound like a familiar question? I hope it does. Um, not just to give mental assent to it or to be theologically accurate about it, but to believe into it, to trust it, to practice it, to give myself to it, to be devoted to it. So I'm going to invite us to hold that question uh, in connection with this last phrase. So what does it mean to believe into or trust in the life everlasting? And that, of course, should raise at least one secondary question, which is what do we actually mean by the life everlasting? What does that even mean, as they say? So let's hold that question as well. What does it mean to believe into, to trust in the life everlasting, and what does life everlasting even mean? But as we hold those questions, we're going to dive into a story. I'm kind of amped about this. To, to spend some time in a story. We're going to walk around in this story for a while. If you have a chair Bible handy, I invite you to turn to John 11. And uh, we're going to dive in. John chapter 11. We're going to start with the first <clears throat> six verses. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, 
this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Notice a few things in this section. Let's begin with noticing how love is so prominent. So first, there's this mention of an act of love by Mary. So John is doing more than help the reader know which Mary is in view here. It's like he's saying, remember this Mary? Like this Mary is the one who loved Jesus in a tangible and uh, concrete, costly way. So then the disciples... We presume that Mary and Martha sent word through the disciples because it's not, they're not there in the same geographical space. So the disciples then identify Lazarus for Jesus as the one you love is sick. So this act of love, the one you love is sick. And then we have Jesus' response in verse 4, which we'll come back to. But then verse 5, John writes, Jesus loved Mar- Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It seems to me that this is something John doesn't want us to miss, that wherever this story is going next, here is a circle of friendship that's marked by care and compassion, that that there's a deep relational history at play, and love is at its center. Another thing I want us to note is Jesus' response. So first he says, in essence, you know, this sickness isn't the fatal kind. So at that point, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm kind of going, okay, we're in store for miraculous healing here been here before, so buckle in. This reveals your glory. We get it, okay? But then he says something else. No, it's for God's glory that God's, so that God's Son may be glorified through it, and that's a bit odd, but okay. Again, this will be an occasion that reveals your glory, which all of the other miraculous healings have also done, so we get it. But then, verse 5 and 6, once more. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So, mm, that's a bit weird. Has anyone noticed that before? There's more oddness going on here. Clearly, Jesus did hear the news that Lazarus was sick, but what does he decide to do? He stays where he is for another two days. He doesn't even mention it to the disciples that he's going to do this. He didn't make preparations to go. He didn't even send a message back to say, hey, we're on our way. He just stayed put. Well, some of us might read that and think, that's a bit of a jerk move, isn't it? I mean... It's kind of like a 911 operator receiving a phone call and saying, you know what, I'm just going to let this one go to voicemail. I'll, I'll get to it a little bit later when I'm ready. But this is Jesus we're talking about. So maybe there's a bit more going on. Let's stay with the story. Verse 7. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So I imagine disciples making this sort of face in that moment. This is just one of my favorite gifts. So it was an excuse to use it. I love verse 12, also in the the New Revised Standards, which says, just puts a little bit sharper point on it. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. 
It's like, he's just sleeping. He's sick, right? We want him to sleep. So let's just let him sleep. He's going to be fine. And then John clears things up for everyone, starting 13 once again. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Gets a little dark there at the end. Now, last week I suggested that one of the ways I think we can understand the Apostles' Creed is as the overturning of preconceived notions. Right? We talked a lot about that. And this story reads a lot like that as well. That It's all about the ways Jesus surprises people and just upends their expectations. He didn't go when the sisters asked him. He did eventually go, but the disciples tried to persuade him not to. He talks of sleep as death, while his disciples thought he meant ordinary sleep. And then in the middle of verse 9, he gives this weird little saying about people walking in the daytime or at night, and that the darkness is when you're going to trip up, and what does he mean by all this? The heart of Jesus' message seems to be that the only way you're going to know where you're going is if you follow him. Try to go your own way, and you'll surely trip up. Stick close, on the other hand, see things from Jesus' point of view, and you'll find your way in the end. Even if it means days, or maybe even years of cloudiness, and not knowing, and mystery, wondering why nothing seems to be happening. This strange little saying seems to get at the core question of the life of faith. Are we able to trust that with Jesus, everything is going to be all right? Even if the path we're invited to follow him on means death. We sang about the sweetness of trusting Jesus. It, it doesn't always feel sweet, but it doesn't mean it's less true. And then loyal Thomas, who, as at times slow to understand, was nonetheless determined to keep going. So when he speaks those heavy words at the end of verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him, we see that he gets it. They don't die with him, of course, not at that time anyway, but this is the posture of a faithful apprentice. It's the, correct re it's the right response. I like how one writer summarizes this. There is a great deal that we don't understand, and our hopes and plans often get thwarted, but if we go with Jesus, even if it's into the jaws of death, we will be walking in the light. Whereas if we press ahead arrogantly with our own plans and ambitions, we are bound to trip up. I was reading that, researching this section, and I just thought, we have to sing a little bit right here. So just join me in this phrase. You all know it. I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. Once more. I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. 
by this point in the story, I hope we're also beginning to see that this isn't just a story about Lazarus, that this is a story about Jesus, that really he's the main character, not Lazarus. Are you still with me? Remember, we're holding our main questions, right? What does it even mean to believe into the life everlasting, and what is that in the first place? Okay, let's carry on. Verse 17 goes this way. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who, has, who is to come into the world. Hmm. When's the last time you said, if only? If only she hadn't stepped out in front of that car. If only he had worked a little bit harder and didn't fail the exam. If only a different president had been elected the last time around. If only we hadn't decided to go on holidays that very week. Whatever it is, we all know that sinking feeling of wanting to turn the clock back. And it's precisely because this is such a universal feeling that we keep telling ourselves stories about moving backwards and forwards through the long history of time, like Looper, like Edge of Tomorrow, like Bill and Ted, and the Grand Kahuna, Back to the Future, right? We keep telling ourselves these stories, stories that imagine what it would be like to change something in a past generation that will mean that now everything in the present and the future can be different. And like all nostalgia, it's bittersweet. It, you get a front row seat to what might have been, and you know it's all fantasy. And all of that, I suggest, is contained in verse 21 in Martha's if only to Jesus. She knows in her gut that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would be cured. She likely also knows that it had taken Jesus at least two days longer to get there than she had hoped. Lazarus, however, has already been dead four days, but maybe he, he might just have made it if only. But then Jesus engages her in conversation, and we see that this, this back-to-the-future notion isn't actually just a good idea for film franchise. So what, what does Jesus do? Instead of focusing on the past, dreaming of what might have been but is now impossible, he invites her to look to the future. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha knows, as well as Jesus does, that this is, mm, if there were a class, it would be Jewish Afterlife 101. As we noted last week, there were some Jews, namely the Sadducees, who didn't buy into the idea of the resurrection or a future resurrection, but at this point, most Jews did. So Martha believes this too, but her response in verse 24 reveals this isn't totally what she wants to hear right now. Martha answered, 
I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's kind of like she's saying, thank you for the mini eschatology lesson. To her ears, this promise sounds like an empty platitude. It's like, how is this going to help me now? But she's not prepared for what comes next. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the future has burst into the present. That the new creation, and with it, the resurrection, has come forward from the end of time into the middle of time. Jesus is saying that he hasn't just come, as we sometimes say or sing, from heaven to earth, but it's also true that he has come from God's future into the present. That the incarnate one has entered the chaos and disorder of the world we too inhabit. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says. And in saying so, he reveals that resurrection is not just a doctrine, not just a theological category. It isn't just a future fact. It's a person. Resurrection is a person. And here that person is standing in front of another person, inviting her to make a massive leap of trust. He's challenging her, as Tom Wright put it, to exchange her if only for an if Jesus. If Jesus is who she is coming to believe he is, if Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was promised by the prophets, the one who has come into the world, if Jesus is God's own son, the one in whom the living God is strangely and newly present, if he is resurrection in person, if he is life come to life, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. Yes, Lord, she replies. So John is a gifted storyteller, so at this point, he changes course. He leaves us in suspense. So Martha has to go get her sister. So, okay press pause. We're going to come back in a few moments just as he does. But for the time being, let's sit with a different question. Does the idea of never dying sound exciting to you? Is the notion of living forever actually appealing to anyone? It's a big question. I'm sure there's just not one answer out there. But I want to tell you about a writer from Argentina named Jorge Luis Borges. Probably all of you were reading him this past week. Um, he told a story about a man who drinks from a river of immortality and becomes immortal. But what he soon discovers is that life without death lacks definition. It doesn't mean anything. Then one day the man learns that there is somewhere out there another river that can take immortality away. So he spends centuries wandering the earth, drinking from every spring and river he can find, seeking to end the curse of endless life. Borges writes, death makes humans precious and pathetic. Their ghostliness is touching. Any act they perform may be their last. Put another way, death gives us our worth. Death is what affects our whole being, the emotions. Another writer said it like this, you cannot make life better just by increasing its quantity. What matters most is quality. 
Here's where we come back to our phrase from the creed. And what I want to suggest is maybe, and the life everlasting isn't the best translation. Why? Because on the surface, on the literal level, all we're saying in confessing this part of the creed is this. I believe life simply goes on and on for an indefinite length of time. Is that all we're being invited to say? I, for one, sincerely hope not. What would be better then? How about eternal life? Now, some of you are thinking, how does that help? You've just kind of substituted one word that means forever with another one that means exactly the same thing. So you're not helping. Well, not exactly. Not if we're employing a New Testament understanding of the word eternal. The creed uses an expression that's found all over the New Testament, especially, you might guess, in the place we've been hanging out today, Gospel of John. Here's what one writer said. For John, eternal life is, not, is about quality, not quantity. It is a quality of life that believers experience when they attach themselves to Jesus. Isn't that a great definition? Here's my paraphrase. Eternal life is the quality of life we can know firsthand here and now when we remain connected to the source of all life. It's a quality of life we can know firsthand here and now when we remain connected to the source of all life. John's Gospel 336, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 524, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 17:3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you hear the tenses there? It's not will have eternal life, it's has eternal life. It's not this is the eternal life you'll have someday, it's this is eternal life here, now. So like the resurrection, Scripture doesn't attempt to define this special quality of life except to say it's synonymous with Christ himself. It's his word. I am the resurrection and the life. The Son of God is the one who is truly and fully alive and everything else that lives does so through him. This is one of the truths that lies at the heart of John's prologue, chapter 1. You've heard it before. Eternal life can even be used as a title for Jesus. In John's first epistle, Jesus is called the eternal life that was with the Father. So when you get close enough to the source of anything, you begin to draw energy and life from that thing. Think of your best friends. Think of your spouse, those who have spouses. Think of your kids. You draw energy and life with that thing, that person. So it is with Jesus. If we get close enough to Jesus, we start to share his quality of life. And we too become fully and truly alive. So when we confess in the creed that we believe in the life everlasting, or I'd suggest better, the life eternal, we're not talking about duration. We're talking about relationship. In the person of Jesus, we find ourselves drawn into a quality of life that is so rich it can only be described as eternal. So we plunge back into our story. When Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again, Martha hears duration. She says, yeah, I know Lazarus will eventually, someday, somehow live forever. There is this resurrection thing that we're all believing in. But what Jesus meant was relationship. Here's how one translation puts it. You don't have to wait for the end. I am, right now, resurrection and life. 
The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. To say then, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is not just to say that we believe in an eternally enduring life in the future. Before that, it means a present life of eternal significance. Heaven is first of all now, and therefore surely later. I love this Beekner quote, which is also in your handout today. He says, we think of eternal life, if we think of it as, at all, as what happens when life ends. We would do better to think of it as what happens when life begins. Hmm. Back in the story, when we left off, Martha had, Martha had gone to get her sister. So let's pick it up at verse 32. So when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. When the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Pause there. So we've spent some time here trying to define eternal life in terms of quality, in terms of a, a richness that's made possible when we link arms with Jesus. But let's not for a moment see quality and richness through rose-colored lenses. Eternal life is a relationship offered to us in solidarity with everything we experience, and that includes pain and suffering. So after Mary was summoned, you heard it, right? She had her own if only. She had her own if only to bring before Jesus. And what does he do? Well, here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't dismiss it or deny it or cast it aside. He saw her weeping along with the others who were with her, who were also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The word troubled there is a tough one to translate because it's got such a wide range of meaning. It can mean distressed or stirred. It can also evoke a sense of holy anger. So Mary's pain became Jesus's pain. Mary's frustration became Jesus's frustration. Mary's anger, there would have been anger, became Jesus's anger. A couple of verses later, Mary's tears become Jesus' tears. And the Jews gathered around and said, see how he loved him. Remember that theme? But some remained locked down if they're in, in their if-onlys. So the quality of life that Jesus offers does not guarantee the absence of suffering. What it does give is the assurance that we will never be alone in it. Christ enters our if-onlys and Christ feels them, lives them alongside us, even within us. And one has to imagine also that given where John's gospel is about to lead us, that some of the sorrow Jesus felt in that moment was a grieving of his own death. He knew it was right around the corner. 
So the Lazarus story prepares us for the questions that are going to be asked at the moment uh, that Jesus himself has to die. Couldn't the man who did so many signs have arranged things so he himself didn't have to die? Couldn't the one who saved so many in the end have saved himself? And John hints at the answer a thousand times through his gospel. Don't count them. There's not exactly a thousand. That, that only through his death, it is through the sharing of this common fate of humanity that the world can be saved. It is only through suffering that love is most deeply revealed. I want to invite you into a very brief thought experiment. Think about one of the deepest experiences of love you've ever known. One of the deepest experiences of love, most intense. To know love intensely often has the effect of changing what's usual in our perceptions. It seems to kind of carry us outside of space and time, right? You know it? Even if for a brief moment we feel limitless. And so it's no wonder that the poets and philosophers all speak of the eternal quality of love which is also the reason why every experience of love carries something tragic at the same time. We feel like we've transcended time, but we know it can't last. We say things like love is fragile, love is fleeting. Time steals everything in the end. I wonder whether eternal life is something like an intense experience of love without the dark shadow of tragedy. When we taste life in its fullness, even death, loses its sting. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, those who trust me and attach themselves to me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What if Jesus is so completely and fully alive that even to him, to him, even death is just another way of being alive? As we find our way to the living source of all life, to Jesus himself, we realize that death isn't really death anymore. Even in death, our relationship to Jesus is not broken. Death becomes another place we can go to find him. Wherever we go, he, wa he waits to meet us there. We all heard of St. Francis of Assisi. In the 13th century, he composed his famous hymn, The Canticle, of the sun. This is, I came across this image, love it. Native American icon of St. Francis. Man. Francis sees everything in light of God's love in this work, in the Canticle of the Sun, and so he sees every creature as a friend. Often if you see St. Francis, he's pictured with animals, flora and fauna. And so because uh, he sees every creature as a friend, he sings praise to Brother Sun, to Sister Moon, to Brother Fire, and Sister Water, and he spreads his joy over the whole of creation, and he finally turns to Sister Death, and he greets even her as a friend. Francis has forgotten how to be afraid. He's found his way to the source of life. He meets Jesus everywhere, even in death, and so he never really dies, but only enters more deeply into life. Let's finish this story. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And stop there. Notice the ordering of belief and glory. How often do you and I want to reverse them? I'm super into reversing them. First show me something, God, then I'll believe you. But God's glory is always more deeply revealed to those who have had their eyes open through trust. Tis so sweet to trust. Oh, for grace to trust him more. I don't think you could have picked a better song this morning, Jenny. Thank you for that. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What might it look like to believe into the resurrection, the life everlasting, or life eternal. I want to consider a few invitations with you. First, to embrace life eternal, which is really just Jesus' life in you. When you and I make a focused commitment to follow Jesus, when, when we respond to his invitation to live life his way, something mysterious occurs. Richard Rohr says it's something like this. After conversion, you don't look out at reality. You look out from reality. In other words, God is not out there. You are in God, and God is in you. After his own conversion experience, Paul becomes obsessed with the idea that I am participating in something that's bigger than me. He uses the phrase, in Christ, 164 times in all his writings to describe this organic unity and participation in Christ, as he says it in Galatians 2, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And that is a totally different experience of life. It means I don't have to fully write my private story. It's being written with me and in me. I am already a character on the stage. I'm being used, I'm being chosen, I'm being led. Roar again says, after conversion, you will know that your life is not about you. You are about life. You are about God. You're an instance of both the agony and the ecstasy of God that is happening inside of you, and all you can do is say yes to it. After transformation, it's not about doing it right. It's about being in right relationship. It's not about being correct. It's about being connected. So I wonder, in order to embrace life eternal, we could ask ourselves some sub-questions. So what are the practices that keep me connected? How might I intentionally attach myself to life eternal? What would that look like? To the life that God wants to live through my life, which is not my own. I think a second invitation follows close on the heels of the first. And we could say, pledge allegiance to Jesus again. One of my favorite preachers today is Jonathan Martin. If you don't know him and you're looking for an Instagram or a Twitter follow that will offer high support and high challenge. I commend Jonathan Martin to you. On July 4, just a few days ago, he posted this image. 
and I want to share the caption with you. Settle in, it'll take a minute or two. But whoa, is it worth it. He writes this. Today is a day set aside for pledging allegiance, honoring sacrifice, remembering that we are part of a larger communal story that gives our individual stories meaning and purpose. I'm happy to participate. Today I once again pledge my allegiance to the haunted, disfigured man on the tree. Today I remember, remember the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The one who took all the horrors of war into himself. The one who walked the trail of tears, bearing the horror of Auschwitz, Hiroshima, Vietnam, in his own body, like a cosmic rag doll. We purged ourselves on him so we could be beautiful, and he opened not his mouth. I remember that the ultimate victory over the forces of sin, death, and hell did not come from the taking of life, but from him laying his own life down. I remember that the history of wars is not the story that gives me meaning, but the story of saints, martyrs, and misfits who overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, loving not their own lives even unto death. I remember that he called me not to the greatness of a nation state, but to the humility of the upside down kingdom that transcends these imaginary pencil drawn lines, lines that mean nothing to the shattered one on the cross. I remember that tanks will not prevail in a world in which we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. I remember that the scarred and resurrected Messiah will call the world into account, not because he has the biggest gun, but because the very words that tumble out of his mouth are a sharp sword that will strike down the nations. I remember the one that taught me that independence is always a lie and teaches me daily to be vulnerable and dependent instead. Today I celebrate my dependence on the slaughtered lamb. I pledge my allegiance to him and the way of self-sacrificial love for which he stands. I will eat a hot dog today. I'll pull for my home country in the Olympics, but I won't put my hand over my heart for anything or anybody else. He has it all. <sighs> to believe in the life everlasting is to believe into a relationship. It's to remember the story that most tells us who we are. It is to pledge allegiance to a person, to the haunted, disfigured man on a tree, to the one who is the resurrection and the life. That one. No one else. Does he have your whole heart? Does he have mine? Pledge allegiance to Jesus again and again. How many ever times do you need to do it? Look for and celebrate resurrection. Last invitation. Look for and celebrate resurrection in your own life and that of others. I think believing into the resurrection and the life everlasting means looking for the little Lazarus stories that are happening around us all the time. Not just in our own lives, but those around us. We need each other's help because resurrections aren't always accompanied by fanfare. They're hidden, they're obscure, but they're no less real. I want to let Mary Oliver have the last word this morning. 
actually the second to last word. I'm gonna read a poem and then I'm gonna invite us to hold silence for a moment to just listen for the spirit. And maybe there's a, a particular nuance of these invitations or something else that spirit wants to bring into your own, soul, your own heart and soul this morning. So let's listen to this, then we'll have some stillness, and then I'll invite us all to the table. This is called Hurricane. It didn't behave like anything you had ever imagined. The wind tore at the trees, the rain fell for days, slant and hard. The back of the hand to everything. I watched the trees bow and their leaves fall and crawl back into the earth, as though that was that. This was one hurricane I lived through. The other one was of a different sort and lasted longer. Then I felt my own leaves giving up and falling, the back of the hand to everything. But listen now to what happened to the actual trees. Toward the end of that summer, they pushed new leaves from their stubbed limbs. It was the wrong season, yes, but they couldn't stop. They looked like telephone poles and didn't care. And after the leaves came blossoms. For some things, there are no wrong seasons, which is what I dream of for me. Let's be still together.